Good morning, Stuart, Florida. It is uh, I, Rabbi Durbin, here as a priest and a rabbi with Father Anderson uh, away, and we wish him and certainly his family a well-deserved vacation. Uh, but it is uh, it is with great pleasure that we have a very special guest this morning who's going to come and uh, talk to us about the power of words, how words have meaning, and how our words can be shaped and used in narratives and stories that present a message and a lesson that we can learn from. Uh, it is, uh, it is uh, with great pleasure that I welcome to our program Rabbi David Gelfand out of um, Temple Israel of the city of New York. Uh, Rabbi Gelfand, he was, I actually interned with, uh, with Rabbi Gelfand uh, in my final year of rabbinical school. Um, he was just such a, and to, to go back to our earlier program, uh, with uh, with the Get Up and Go show, uh, you know, he is just, he, he's, Rabbi Gelfand's a mensch um, uh, and, and taught me a lot about what is, uh, what is to be used in the rabbinate, how we can best assert ourselves and really put our best foot forward. Um, so it is with great pleasure that I welcome to the program Rabbi Gelfand Gelfand out of the city of New York, Temple Israel, who will talk to us today about the power and the impact that stories and words have on our culture and our society. Hope you enjoy. Thanks. A priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi, a priest, a rabbi. The opinions you hear from on this show do not represent WSTU since they probably regretted over-allowing the show on the air in the first place. Nor do they represent Temple Bay Hayam or St. Mary's Episcopal Church, since they also wonder what the heck they did when they called these two men to lead their respective congregations. On that note, sit back, relax, grab your Bible or Torah, and enjoy another episode of A Priest and a Rabbi. A priest and a rabbi this morning, although Father Anderson is uh, is on assignment. Um, seems like we've almost swapped a little bit, uh, for he is in New York City uh, and will be coming back shortly. But um, uh, it is I today, just Rabbi Durbin, with, um, with with a very special guest. And I do uh, I do want to say this, um, you know, today's topic that we're looking at we're going to be examining and exploring the concept of stories and narratives and, and where those stories, where they come from, what is its impact, what is its meaning, um, and how we make sense in our world today through uh, stories. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited because I have a very special guest, a, a very dear friend, uh, one who also um, is quite inspiring for me. Uh, I do have... Um, He's actually here from New York City, uh, and it is my great pleasure to welcome this morning to our program, Rabbi David Gelfand. Um, and Rabbi, Rabbi Gelfand is the senior rabbi at Temple Israel of uh, the city of New York. Uh, rabbi Gelfand is a very gifted teacher, uh, one who is a caring counselor, uh, a very eloquent and uh, quite impactful uh, preacher, has inspired 
a renaissance of creative and dynamic Jewish living for his congregational families, as well as um, as well as open to the wider public, as over 300 families have joined uh, his congregation in the past few years. Uh, Rabbi Gelfand is um, arrived at Temple Israel, one of New York City's most historic synagogues, in 2007. Uh, along with a very talented group of clergy team and staff. Uh, he is constantly on the move. He is profoundly passionate and committed to teaching Torah in the broadest sense to all people. Um, he, is, uh, he is one who is inspiring, one who is dynamic. He has uh, a deep and passionate love for the state of Israel uh, and has traveled with his congregants in having taken over a thousand people to Israel and has led multiple Jewish heritage trips to Eastern Europe, Cuba, Spain, Morocco, Argentina, Chile, and Brazil. Uh, before Rabbi Gelfand was at uh, Temple Israel in New York, he was also the rabbi at the Jewish Center of the Hamptons uh, in Long Island, where he initiated the highly acclaimed Hamptons Jewish Summer Institute. He also uh, began his career at Temple Bethel in Great Neck, New York, also served congregations in New Jersey and Ohio, uh, he is also uh, a founding member of the Alliance, Interfaith Alliance, um, also in Washington, D.C., the largest interfaith organization in the United States. Uh, Rabbi Gelfand is an outspoken prophetic voice on social justice and social conscience, as well as activist and vigilant in all human rights cases, social justice, interfaith, and many, many, many more. Uh, Rabbi Gelfand and his wife, Kathy, a gifted stylist and jewelry desi designer, and their four children reside in New York City and East Hampton. And of course, David enjoys cooking, traveling, culture, nature, and just being a remarkably upstanding individual. So it is my great pleasure this morning to welcome to our program, Rabbi David Gelfand. Well, Rabbi Durbin, Matt, what a pleasure it is to be with you. I'm sorry that your colleague, uh, a, a fellow member of the clergy, uh, is uh, not with you right now to be with us <coughs> for this discussion, um, but I'm delighted to be with you. Um, I first had the privilege to uh, get to really know Rabbi Durbin when he was in rabbinic school and he was an intern with us for a year at Temple Israel, the city of New York, um, and was beloved by so many people who got to know him. We were still at a time of extreme transition. It was only my uh, the beginning of my rabbinate um, at Temple Israel, and I look forward sometime to you coming back and seeing how things have grown, uh, not only since you were there, but also as you were there as we began that uh, period of transformation um, in 2007, 8, and 9. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Matt, for inviting me to be with you today. Uh, it is truly a privilege. My, uh, my best, my love to Rose and to your kids, um, and I look forward uh, to returning sometime there. I was privileged I don't know the beginning of this show. It had all these comments that suggested that um, this was a little crazy, um, that you and uh, your colleague were leading your communities and how this radio station could be uh, having you uh, host such a show. Uh, but I've only known you, um, uh, you know, in the best possible way. Uh, yes, with an incredible sense of warmth, a great ability to listen, um, and as a, an upstanding and moral leader. And I was privileged to actually install you in your current congregation as you began your career there. And what a privilege that was, as I had the privilege in your former congregation to also install you. Um, but I hope that we'll get to spend some time together, uh, not only in this hour, but as we look forward. Absolutely. 
And and just for those that that obviously may not may not have the um, the, the background or the understanding, um, you know, part of part of my 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 thought process, especially for this moment for this program for today, um, Rabbi Gelfin is a gifted orator, uh, one who is extremely uh, just. There's something about the way, and if you haven't seen it, please check out uh, Temple Israel of the City of New York. You can check out previous. Uh, um, services and certainly sermons from Rabbi David Gelfand. Um, it's just the way, uh, 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 Rabbi Gelfand, that you bring in stories uh, that are just, uh, that are just beautiful um, in a way that uh, is, is inspiring. Um, I know for myself, it's one of those things that I try and aspire to uh, when I look to uh, many of the role models that I have in my life. Um, you know, Rabbi Gelfand, you are, you are, you are top on the list. You are uh, the one that I hold very sacred and very dear. Uh, I'm also quite impressed that you can uh, just speak off the cuff, uh, no notes, and just really galvanize, you know, those that are there uh, listening to really have a very impactful message. Well, I will tell you, I've been a rabbi for over 40 years now. And uh, with these upcoming High Holy Days, uh, this year on the calendar, uh, we say early, we'll get to that in a minute of what that means. It follows a Jewish calendar, a Hebrew calendar from antiquity. So they kind of move around there. There's a possibility of movement uh, forward and backward for four weeks. Um, but uh, be that as it may, um, to me, I think it all began uh, not so much in storytelling, but in understanding the value of words. I literally remember the first sermon I gave in um, September of, uh, to the congregation at Temple Bethel Great Neck in September of 1976. And um, I don't have a copy of it, but I remember that I felt responsible to explain uh, something about the to, the, to the community that I was going to serve as in a secondary position as the assistant rabbi of the congregation with an esteemed uh, rabbi who was also a great order. Um, but I, um, always cherish the value of words. And um, whether it was from just learning literature and, and uh, the English language and studying other languages, I don't know, though I have a passion and an interest in linguistics, but it, I think it was much more, Matt, in the ability to recognize that more than any formal teaching, people remember how you treat them and they remember your words or the values that you speak more often through stories than they do in what I would call formal teaching. Though I love to teach and I am a formal teacher, though I also like informal education. So first of all, the value of words. Why, if I really am honest when I think back, um, my mother died when I was a child. Um, I was five and a half years old. I have memories of her, very few, but some. And I remember several things she told me. My father also died when I was young in my mid twenties, right as I was becoming a rabbi. And um, I think those, those events in my personal life impacted upon me first, the value of words. Second of all, the stories that other people tell you about your grandparents, your parents. And I began to understand and appreciate that over time. That first sermon that I gave was actually about the value of words. Then as I began to learn, I know some pre um, preachers, ministers, 
um, pastors, uh, priests, rabbis, imams, when they think of speaking, they think of it as an obligation and a responsibility. I do feel that it is a sacred responsibility, and I do feel to use stories and the narrative of our peoples uh, and of our culture and of our country to be critically important. But on another level, I think that the sharing of stories is how we create memory making. And I think clergy of all faiths, uh, of different denominations, men and women, et cetera, of, of no matter what their tradition or their personal stance, the truth is we are in the business of memory making because it's through memories that we are able to inculcate values. Now, the truth is we are really, really committed to being teachers of values and different faith traditions express their values in slightly different ways, different illustrations, New Testament, Torah, Quran, um, whether it is through meditation, if I'm a Buddhist or whether it is for any other reason, ultimately we are invested in creating memories for others not just for children, but for people of all ages, whether they are married or whether they are single, whether they are grandparents or whether they are newly married. It doesn't matter where on the spectrum of life you are. And so by sharing stories, I believe um, that we are able to share values. So let me use an American illustration because I know we have a wider uh, story. And again, I understand this goes globally through your, um, your podcast. So this could be, you could transpose this no matter where you live. So this is actually a true story. Um, I, was, um, I was in the beginning of my rabbinic school training, you, are, uh, you go off to graduate school in Israel in the seminary for a year. And from those of us here in the States at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, and I'm there and um, I was, I would say, I was the youngest person in my class by chronology. And I would also even say, having grown up wanting to be a rabbi and thinking about all these things about the power of words um, and of faith, uh, trying to, to really kind of jump in. And But there were people, a third of them had other degrees and had other professions. A third of them had been out of school several years ahead of me. And I was always young, if you pardon the expression, for my age. I kind of was the youngest kid in my class growing up as a little kid. And then I accelerated to college and, and doing the same thing, rabbinic school. But for our purpose here, um, I, I'm, uh, it's Thanksgiving and I'm in a foreign country. And um, a professor invites me, um, to, I'm sorry, a professor asked the question, what are you gonna do for Thanksgiving? And if I was ever homesick before a little bit, which I was, um, I was even more homesick. I happen to be back in Israel. So again, forget about that. It's Israel. I'm in a foreign country. I'm not in the United States of America, where the most um, tradition-bound holiday that we have as American citizens that has religious overtones, but is not of a faith tradition, is Thanksgiving. This time, a professor says to me, um, so what are you doing for Thanksgiving, David? And I say, I'm doing nothing. I'm here. I, you know, I, I, we're here. I'm here for a semester this time. And I remember how lonely it was last time. He said, you're not going to be lonely this time. He said, I happen to have been here fall semester. Every time I have a sabbatical, I come. So I was here seven years ago. I was here seven years before that. So my wife and I, we came, we put into our suitcase cans of pumpkin to make pumpkin pie because you can't do that here. And cranberry sauce because you can't get that here. Now at Turkey, you can get so I'm inviting you, and I was in a, a graduate program and um, <laughs> at the Hebrew University, and they invite me to come to Thanksgiving with some other people. 
it was one of the best Thanksgivings I ever had. And the reason was, as he said at that time, imagine if tonight we invited you here and we served spaghetti or we all got together and we just had pita and falafel, which would be a common thing in Israel. But here we are having this from our cultural reach, the power of the values. We, we talked about serious things that Thanksgiving and we laughed more than I ever laughed at a Thanksgiving. And we didn't have the parade and I missed that. And we didn't have the football games and I missed that. And we didn't have all our extended family and I missed that. But this was an, a family in the moment that shared the stories of our culture and shared it with using sensory perception. So when we can illustrate things in stories, Matt, that add sensory perception, wow. And that's where holidays like Christmas and Easter and Rosh Hashanah with apples and honey or Passover with matzah or even Easter with Easter eggs or meals that are celebrated during Ramadan. It doesn't matter what faith tradition, we are able to feel at home or if we are a visitor, like we have a window in to other people and through that we create memories. Hmm. So a moment on, um, and to use the stories as, as you've illustrated to help maybe a little and feel free of course to um, to comment or to, to ask questions here. But so this year, the Jewish high holy days are early. Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish new year will begin on the Monday night of Labor Day. It happens once in a while, but not so often. I think this is maybe around that Sunday night, Monday night, um, or even Tuesday night. I think this is the third or fourth time in my career. So let's say it's the third time in about 40 plus years. So the question sometimes is asked in the reverse, like a couple, and this will happen next year when the way this lunar calendar works, the high holidays will be really late. So they will be the end of September or October. And that happened several years ago also. So a kid asks the question, so rabbi, when are the Jewish holidays this year? Or how come Rosh Hashanah is so late this year? Some people find it very confusing that the Hebrew calendar is based on a lunar calendar. And while the secular calendar seems to keep things straight because it follows the cycle of the sun, not only non-Jews, but Jews wonder about how is this possible that the holidays slip and slide? So the story is told of a little boy who woke up early one Sunday morning and while the rest of his family is fast asleep, in his home, like I had had in my home, there was a chime clock. And the chime clock that Sunday morning began to strike. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He continued to count. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. But the clock continued. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. And the kid then screeches. Incredibly astounded, he runs back upstairs, wakes everyone in the house shouting, quick, everybody get up. It's later than it's ever been. In some ways, though the Jewish holidays are early this year, because of the pandemic and the fact that we are approaching a year and a half into it, it feels like for us, never having lived through a pandemic, that it's later than it's ever been. And it feels that way because of the polarization in our culture, in, our, in the world. It feels like that when we turn the news on all the time. 
it feels like things are worse and worse. And so, when is Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year? A, a student asks of God through his rabbi, and God answers, you need not ask me. Ask those who dwell on earth. They will decide when the new year begins. So our job, Matt, is always, and some of us love these high holy days and some are intimidated or wary. I'm intimidated, but I love it because I get to tell more stories. Hmm. So a different kind of story that comes from general culture, literature. George Bernard Shaw once remarked, that the only, only, only intelligent person that he knew was his tailor, who would measure him anew each time he ordered a new shirt, a new suit, a new jacket. The tailor never assumed that Shaw always remained exactly the same. All of us are like him. Change constantly. Like the, we are like the observation of the tailor, change is usually incremental and it's modest, not obvious to most in a short time span. But modernity suggests us that change can sometimes happen abruptly, happen quickly, and change causes us to change. Um, in my present congregation, a gentleman who then became president of the congregation a couple years later decided um, to attend a weekly Torah study. It, we do that on the Sabbath morning, on Shabbat morning, on Saturday morning in our community, not unusual. And again, it's no different than Bible study in the church world. Anyway, he went through the cycle of the year with us because we follow, as in the church world, the lectionary and uh, of our own though. And uh, so we go through from the beginning in the words of Genesis all the way through the end of the Torah, and then we start anew each year. It spreads out with weekly, as it were, assignments. So he finishes the first year and he says to me, wow, this was great. I did this. I can understand, you know, like why people do this. Um, I guess now I leave and other people come. I mean, he was one of a group of 30 or 40. And I go, no, no, some of these people have been here for six years, seven years. He's been here for 10 years. I said, that guy started before I was here in my former congregation in the Hamptons. He's been with me already. I'd only been there five or six years. I said, he's already been studying Torah with me for 11 years. And he looked at me, why would I do that? Aren't you going to teach the same thing next year? Hmm. The text is always the same. It doesn't matter which text it is. It doesn't matter which faith tradition. But the world changes, and in all honesty, we change. And do you, do you find, do you find, so, you know, and I think it's a great example looking at Torah study, as, as, as you so eloquently put it. I mean, look, the, the text never changes. It's we who change. But even even uh, even our own stories change in some way, and 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 um, you know when you do Torah study, I mean, are there new insights that you read about that that you say to yourself after you know four decades in the rabbinate of being able to say, you know, I, I I've never heard that story before, or what an impactful and just beautiful piece that I, I haven't heard, uh, and bring it to to the group. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember this, Matt, but when you first came to and we met and, and you were going to uh, be my rabbinic intern uh, working with me, I said to you, I felt that this was payback because I had, when I was a rabbinic student, 
than an intern in Toronto where you hail from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the accent, by the way, is a lot less than it was when you were with <laughs> me uh, uh, 14 years ago. The, well, it's because I, I became an American citizen, so I have to- uh, I know, I sent you a congratulatory country. note. I thought that was great. Absolutely. Um, the, um, the understanding of, of that ability to change and interpret and whatever. The rabbi that I worked with in Toronto, who was a mentor, one of my mentors, um, he every year, he did something different than I do. Every year, he relished the opportunity to say, I'm always going to speak about the Torah portion of Rosh Hashanah, which is the almost sacrifice of Isaac. And he looked for new ways to do that. And I remember as a rabbinic student, I go to him, you've been here for decades already. How is it possible that you're going to find new material? And he said, well, first of all, that yes, things come out of the text, but also as the world changes, as life changes, as issues change, I find new ways to delve into the text. And I don't just look at what rabbis have said for thousands of years, but since there have been a lot of rabbis talking for thousands of years, he said, if I live to 500 years of age, I couldn't use all of their comments. But then he also said, but because life changes and literature changes, and I learn not just from Jewish scholars, but from non-Jewish scholars. And he knew that I kind of liked that answer because even as an undergrad, um, I had studied at that time actually in the UCC seminary a bit. Um, And then again, um, when I was an undergrad, I I went to Union Theological Seminary at the opportunity and I experienced things in all different faith traditions as a student of religious studies and cultures. so he loved, he knew that I would love that. And I said, well, I don't even know where to find that. And he, he was really helpful to me showing me how some of that worked and some of which I had learned in the seminary, but never put into practice because I thought it was just for the class that day. So as you delve in and recognize that in all types of literature and all types of uh, history and traditions, um, and uh, so there was so much of that. So another way to illustrate that would be the following. So if you think of the book, even if you've never opened the book, your listeners, you know, yes, you heard stuff about the Bible or the Torah or the Quran or whatever your tradition is, or, or even if it's not your tradition of another tradition. If you think of it, actually, this will sound uh, very uh, Chinese, like an unformed block. Think of it like in the Tao Te Ching. You think of it as the roots of Confucianism and even of Buddhism. But the story is told of the famous um, sculptor, Michelangelo that he once uh, dragged an enormous, enormous piece of marble into a public square in his small town. And the local people gathered around and skeptically asked him what he thought he was possibly doing, bringing this chunk of rock into the center of the town. And he responded, there is an angel inside this stone trying to get out. I want to try and release him. That angel became a famous sculpture, a piece of sculpture, that angel inside. I think that there are gems inside. I think that uh, when we look and it's, or another way to think of it, if you don't want to be so poetic or think of it in literary terms, it's like a kaleidoscope. Okay, I think lots of us know what a kaleidoscope is. You pick it up on a cloudy day and look, it looks totally different than if it's a bright sunny day. Now, forget about the visual of the environment. Let's say that you have an additional light on, your light's on in the room that you're looking at it. It throws more shadows, more colors, brightens them. Let's look at it in a different way. You just had a lousy day or you didn't sleep last night and you look at it. It looks a certain way. 
If in a moment, it's a moment where you are of, um, of heightened joy or you're feeling great, um, you just got a raise, you just had a good day, somebody had a baby in your family, all those great kinds of things, hey, works. It really works. So we, uh, we are just going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we will continue the conversation with Rabbi David Gelfan um, from Temple Israel of the city of New York as we delve a little bit deeper into the power and the meaning behind stories and, and what we can learn from them. So join us in a few. Hey everyone, it's Evan Nine, producer of A Priest and a Rabbi. Thank you for tuning in and being part of this community. We love developing new partnerships with this podcast to help further the interfaith movement. To join us, please email Father Christian at yourfavoritechristian at gmail.com. You can have an advertisement right here on this podcast, which is currently heard across the USA and in 34 other countries. Thanks for being here, and do not forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you're listening from. Now back to A Priest and a Rabbi. Welcome back to the award-winning Priest and a Rabbi radio show with Father Christian and Rabbi Durbin. Let's get ready for the second half of the show. Welcome back, Stuart, Florida. I will say that it has been uh, about a year or so since Todd Newton joined us on our program, uh, award-winning uh, you know, uh, uh, talk show host, uh, recorded for us that, that intro coming back in, and I'll say... Um, you know, with Father Anderson not here, uh, it never gets old. Um, although we're not award-winning, we're almost award-winning. We did not win Florida's Finest Podcast. Hopefully, maybe next year we will. But, um, uh, you know, it is great. It is great to be back here. It is great to have uh, an amazing guest that we have this morning, Rabbi David Gelfand out of uh, Temple Israel of the city of New York. Um, and Rabbi Gelfand has just been um, you know, kind of taking us through this journey of stories and narratives and, and, and the power and the impact that words play, not only in our culture, in our world, but certainly for all who have the ability to listen and to really kind of heed some of those messages. So Rabbi Gelfand, welcome back. And just, um, just wanted to kind of delve in real deep in terms of, you know, and, and for some of our listeners, I think you've heard the term uh, used before, uh, in terms of midrash or the stories the rabbis perhaps have used uh, to fill in the biblical gaps, um, and using some of these midrashic stories, um, you know, kind of sends us and our communities uh, a, a, a message and a lesson. And I, I guess Rabbi Gelfand, I would, I, I'm curious to know, um, have you ever, have you ever had a situation where you yourself 
had very strong convictions or something that you felt very powerful uh, or sorry, very impactfully that you wanted to present a message. But because as clergy, we have to we have to dance around this delicate balance between, you know, not being political or, you know, not sending uh, a, a certain message. But, you know, have you ever found for yourself that a way to send the message very clearly, but to guise it in a story or a narrative so that uh, all have the ability to interpret for themselves what the meaning may be? Uh, what a wonderful question. Thank you, Rabbi Durbin. Thank you, Matt. Um, the this has always been a challenge um and there, and you have to listen carefully to the wording here because sometimes people say well i don't want my minister i don't want my rabbi i don't want my priest to be political the challenge to that is if you think of what the word political really means outside of the current context political is simply the ability to negotiate in life i think what people really mean is that they don't want you to be partisan or if you're taking a partisan stand, you better be really sure that you are standing on a very, very firm foundation of what your faith tradition has to say. So um, again, not to open up a hot topic, but I'll open up a hot topic for you, um, just in thinking about that in particular. Again, without debating the politics of the moment or the politics of our lifetime, there is one of the issues in our culture, which is different than of many other cultures, and knowing that this will be heard around the world, is that in the United States, we have had a history of using capital punishment, which is unlike anything that exists in democracies, or even in many cases, not democracies around the world. Certainly, we know in totalitarian regimes, people disappear all the time, and unfortunately, too many of them are killed. So I, I don't want to get stuck on this, but I want to use that as an illustration. So the question would be, <laughs> when this has become a hot political issue, um, so what does Judaism have to say about that? And if you look in a literalist sense, in a fundamentalist sense, at uh, the, the Torah or elsewhere in the Bible, it's clear that capital punishment is allowed. The problem is, it's also allowed for a wayward child meaning a kid who doesn't listen to their parents. On that basis, Matthew, I know your family a little bit. I'm guessing that you wouldn't be here and I wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. That is to say, sometime along the way, we probably contradicted our parents or said something or did something we shouldn't have done. And it's not because we did anything terribly outrageous, but in the moment, the response might be of a frustrated parent uh, and they're trying to warn you from touching the hot stove to doing something crazy, standing on the edge of a cliff um, or taking your bike and riding it down into the street from your driveway or something like that. And your parent says to you, if you ever do that again, I'll kill you. That's called hyperbola. Hmm. The biblical warnings are hyperbolic because if not, none of us would have made it out of childhood. Hmm. And in fact, 2000 years ago in rabbinic tradition, close to 2000 years ago, um, there is one judge who allows for a, a capital punishment, and he's like known for the rex throughout history ever since then as the hanging judge. Hmm. Um, the, the nature of capital punishment is several people have to see the exact same thing and report it, but they have to report it exactly word for word. That makes it 
in human existence impossible to happen. Thereby, yes, the threat is there as a warning, as an attempt to teach people something, but not necessarily there. Now, let's now jump to the world, the real world that we live in and not to focus on something in particular. So I'll, I'll use as an illustration one other, two other things, and then actually the story. Um, as we know, in recent years, immigration has become a, a hot button issue in, our, in, in the United States. Um, and so um, I happen to um, be very upset and, and uh, again, from a moral standpoint, to, to watch not only what happens in Israel per se, of which I have great concerns, though I love Israel, I have great concerns about America, but I love America. Um, but I would say, as I looked at the world and saw what was happening with the war in Syria and stuff was going on in Iraq, and a group of people in particular known as Yazidis, uh, where there was an attempt to genocide to kill these people. Um, and then if you remember, um, there was this mass migration of people taking boats and uh, arriving in Greece. And then, um, and then in Germany, the initial thought was they'd taken 100,000 refugees. They, it's, somebody made, made, a made a mistake with the zeros, I think. Uh, like me, I have math anxiety, so it could have been someone like me. Um, and instead of having 100,000 people come into Germany, they had a million people. And a group of people, a, a couple of Israelis go over there and start to organize to help. Now, it's not because they're Israelis. I'm just using this as an example. So but because of that, and I didn't know I was even meeting with them when I went, I went simply to meet with refugee leaders uh, from Iraq and Syria in Germany um, a handful of years ago um, uh, to Berlin. Um, and I was profoundly touched by them so that I could better understand and that we didn't get caught just in the issue when we're talking about immigration and refugee relief, about talking about um, wall and no wall, border and no border. You know, it wasn't about that. It was about the humanitarian response to how do we help people, even if they're being put, so to speak, in a holding pattern. Um, and that's what I, and how do we um, allow them to be acculturated in when we look at certain cultures, you know, uh, the United States has an amazing system when people come from other cultures, immigrants, uh, people who seek asylum, people who just move here. Um, it's something that, again, I grew up with um, in, in my older, in my middle life and, and beyond. I didn't remember it when I was a kid um, called ESL, English as a second language. And we take it for granted. Do you know that most places where people move to a new country, th there is nothing in the education system or in the government to help them acculturate? It's unbelievable. Most European countries don't do that. Now, Germany was trying to figure this stuff out. Anyway, we met a couple of Israelis who were there on the ground that had a great story, called, uh, amazing organization called Israel. They help out in hot spots around the world, uh, whether it was Ebola or a disaster after the tsunami and um, uh, what happened in Japan years ago, or for that matter, uh, in, in lots of places around the globe. And I, I met with them and better understood through them so that I was able to share those stories in a way about immigration and even to the point that I invited these two guys that I met who were so impressive, one a Druze, not Jewish, the other happened to be a secular Israeli, uh, to come and share the story of what they were witnessing. Um, and uh, of course, it was quite amazing watching them interact with these refugees from Arab countries, because of course, they had been taught as kids that um, Israelis and Jews, so here I'm a rabbi and I'm being introduced with about 10 other rabbis, um, that here we are as rabbis to meet these people. Uh, and they go, rabbis, like you're Jewish priests, um, and you're here to help us, and you're here to tell, give voice to our story, to bear witness, 
Part of being a human being is to bear witness, but to bear witness uh, with other cultures and other problems and people who have different views than you um, and, and, and uh, there, where there are great partisan divides. So how do you do that? So the story that I've used to help people understand in times of such um, uh, challenge uh, where there's the other side. The problem seemed insurmountable. It just seemed insurmountable. So let me say that because the problems of the world seem so challenging and insurmountable, when we think of people of different races, when we think of people in terms of sexual orientation, when we think of refugees, when we think of bigotry and prejudice, there are too many people who are hungry and scared. There are too many people who are dying. Bad behaviors applauded. Politics have sunk to new lows. People keep their distance from one another. So let me share an American midrash that speaks to all of us. In Arizona, there is an impressive structure, the Glen Canyon Dam. It was built well over 60 years ago to take water from the Colorado River to Southern California. And it sits where the tall walls of the River Canyon come close together. As work began, engineers realized they were being hampered by the incredible time to get from one side to the other side. Although the river gorge was only a few hundred yards apart, the only way to get across was by climbing down one side, traveling a distance and coming back up the other side. A distance of 180 miles with no good roads. Workers who were working on one side could see the other side. They could yell and be heard. It echoed in the canyon. But they were far, far apart. In fact, it felt like an infinite distance between these people and these people. Too often, that's what's become of us. We see each other. We may even make gestures to each other. It may be a wave. It may only be a finger. We may call to each other words of support, or we may call to each other not only words of criticism, but words that force us to remain apart. In our world, distrust thrives and views us in a way that keeps us at bay. It is true where too many places, reason appears to be illusory. It is true between too many zealots and too many people who want to be inclusive. It is true between the rich and the poor too often, between the old and the young too often, between people of different races and different faith traditions too often. It is too often between citizen and immigrant. We stand within hailing distance, but can't find the common ground. The solution is obvious. The engineers realized before they could start the serious construction, they would have to begin with a temporary bridge across the abyss. And we too need to find ways, parenthetically, like this rabbi and this priest on this radio show, on this pod. We need to build bridges to create reconciliation. We need to build bridges of trust. We need to have bridges between haves and have nots. We need bridges of understanding, regardless of our backgrounds, our faiths, 
and even our politics, or especially because of our politics, our partisanship. Most of all, we need to build bridges between ourselves and God, whatever that means to us, or else we'll find ourselves standing side by side, yet infinitely apart. Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav, a Hasidic sage taught hundreds of years ago, the whole world is a narrow bridge. The key thing is not to be afraid. Let's be less afraid and just a little bit more courageous. Let's think about build, building bridges, about finding ways across, and about standing together on common ground. Amazing. So that's a way to use a story when it's really challenging to use, to, to speak in, in, in highly contentious ways. Um, and, and, and Rabbi Galvin, you know, where, where do you draw your inspiration? I mean, where do you, where do you collect your stories? I mean, you know, I mean, obviously 40 years in a rabbinate, you're going to hear a story or two, maybe we shelve it, maybe we file it. Um, you know, wh 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 where do you find your stories? Where do you find your inner strength and your your inspiration? Where do you find that from? Um, the, the inner strength part first. Um, I think that the word rabbi says it all. A rabbi, the word rabbi means my teacher. I'm willing to be a teacher to anyone who wants to be taught. I also am willing to be a teacher when people don't know they want to be taught but to throw, as it were, what a professor of mine as an undergrad referred to as goodies. And goodies can be books and can be stories and can be articles and can be referencing things. You share these endlessly. I actually say to people in my community, if you see a good story, or I can't read every book, I can't read every, um, every newspaper, send it to me. And today with email, it's easy. Okay, I can't use them all. But I, I don't know if you remember this, I, I teach rabbinic interns who work with me like, um, like that famous rabbi from Stewart, Florida. I taught him to create a file system. Okay, I'm an old guy and I'm not too technological. My file system is still with paper. Hmm. Um, someone who is uh, a little bit older than you, uh, younger, a little younger than me, said to me um, after using a, the file system, kind of as I showed him how to use it, using every holiday, every uh, Torah portion, um, every secular major holiday from Halloween to Valentine's Day, not very Jewish, but I got files on them. I got file on July 4th and Thanksgiving. And of course, I've got it on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Those files today on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I, they're not this and they're not this. I mean, they're off the screen. They're way gone. Okay, they're big, they're a lot. And I spend time. So at this time of year, I'm rereading, I'm going through that. I am always collecting. So here's one I caught just yesterday. It sounds very Jewish. A colleague wrote, a few nights ago, I was watching a television series called West Wing created by Aaron Sorkin in 1999, playing until not 2006, about the West Wing of the White House, the president and his senior staff. And I heard a beautiful Hasidic story. Okay, it's a Hasidic story that was never really a Hasidic story. The character, Leo McGarry, White House Chief of Staff, played by John Spencer, 
may his memory be for a blessing, told this story to Josh Lyman, Deputy Chief of Staff, played by Brad Whitford, in an hour of need. Okay, I admit it, it wasn't exactly a Hasidic story, but it sure sounded like one to me. This guy's walking down the street when he falls into a deep hole. The walls are so steep, he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down the hole and moves on. Then a priest, this is where you can tell it's not a Hasidic story. He comes along and the guy shouts up, father, I'm down in the hole, can you help me out? The priest writes a prayer, throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a, fr a friend walks by and the guy shouts up, hey Joe, it's me, can you help me out? And the friend jumps down into the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid or what? Now we're both down here. The friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Hmm. Hmm. A new story. I don't know when I'll use it, but I'm probably gonna use it soon. I love that story. Hmm. And this and do year- you, do, you, do you find for yourself, Rabbi Gelfand, that almost everything that we read, whether it be yeah, the newspaper, a great novel, that we're, we're constantly reading it through the eyes of what can I glean uh, to be able to use an impactful story or to use in a sermon in some way? Yeah, you don't, okay, again, memory change, you know, plays with a little bit. When you were spending the year with me and we were talking about things or I would tell you a story or tell you something that happened with a congregant and I would use the phrase, something like this. And you know, there's a sermon in that. And you said to me back then, just what you just said now, but in a different way, that was really cute, uh, sweet. And, and when you said to me, is there anything you see that you don't see a sermon in? Mm -hmm. Yes, of course there is. But hey, last night they played in the field of dreams. There's a story and a sermon there. Mm. And especially in light of the pandemic. Remember that field was made for a movie with Kevin Costner and it was always assumed there would never be a professional game there. One of the players before the game, I think it was uttered um, sort of half jokingly, half seriously, and somebody else at the end of the game um, said, um, boy, if only we could do this annually. Turns out the commissioner of baseball already decided it's going to be annual. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll see who wins next time. It may be the Yankees, it may be the White Sox, it may be somebody else. I mean, who knows, Matt, maybe they'll get the Blue Jays there. Yeah, maybe. And maybe we can also get uh, James Earl Jones as well. Uh, yes, I actually was thinking that. Um, I'm going, there's one voice missing here. So I want to leave you with a, a story that to me says it all uh, about a, a story in light of the pandemic and in light of why I think telling stories is so important. And it's really simple and, it's in, and you can play with it. You don't even, for those of your listeners, you don't even need the name of the rabbi that I'm going to use. You can just say, a story is told. A story is told of Rabbi Chaim of Tzantz, who used to teach. A person is lost in the forest. He's been wandering for many days, many nights, and he cannot find his way out. And I thought of this. One of the guys last night before the game, one of the ball players got lost in the cornfields, in the maze. Mm. He couldn't find his way out. Finally, he meets another and says, my friend, I am lost. Can you show me the way? The other guy says, I'm lost too. I can only tell you this. Do not go the way that I have gone. It leads nowhere. The only way to get out of the darkness is to search together. 
So let us join hands and go forward, but go forward together. So whether it's the time of a pandemic or as you face life's challenges or as you face life's opportunities, like this rabbi and this priest who do this weekly show, either one of them could have their own show probably, but it's a lot better when they do it together, hold hands together. Matt, there are lots of different names of synagogues. Okay, they're more named Temple Israel than anything else, but there are lots of different names for synagogues. Some of them, one I grew up with actually, um, like yours, had an English name uh, when you grew up. Yours was Holy Blossom in Toronto. Mine was the Madison Avenue Temple in Scranton, Pennsylvania. But I never heard of this name of a particular synagogue. They're two my two favorite names of synagogues. So here's the story to end with in true terms for anybody. One is in Buenos Aires, Argentina. A group of Holocaust survivors get off a boat and they form a small synagogue. The name of the synagogue is Limrotakol. It means in spite of everything. Not every day is bright and sunny. In spite of everything. We are human beings and have the gift of life and we are here to be grateful. I'm grateful for our friendship. I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak with you today. The second name, again, reflecting on you and the priest, or you and your wife, Rose, or you and I as colleagues and friends. The name of my synagogue, you said, Temple Israel, the city of New York. Its original name when founded in 1870, Yad Biyad. It means hand in hand. So virtually, Matthew, my hand is in your hand always. Please know that in any way that I can be there for you. And please, let's remember, as people get off the air, let's do it hand in hand together. Thank you. Thank you very much.